Has anybody here ever put together IKEA furniture? <laughs> Raise your hand. Yeah. <clears throat> Any of you get a little frustrated during that? It's a little complicated. Instructions maybe not as clear. They do a lot with pictures. I appreciate the diagrams. They're a little short on details sometimes. And I won't ask you to show hands here, um, but, but some people, when they see instructions like that, they kind of just pick them up and throw them out and just say, I got this, right? Maybe that's you. Again, I, I don't want you to embarrass yourself. Just like, I, I don't need the instructions. I can figure this out. Others, you know, they're going to work hard, try to figure out the instructions, want to do it right. Does it really matter? I mean, if you're building a little filing cabinet and you miss a screw or two, three, four, five, does it matter? I mean, as long as the thing stands and it sort of kind of works. I mean, let's face it, it's only going to last a year and a half anyway. Might not be that big a deal, although, you know, if it's a big shelf unit on the wall that could fall on someone, maybe that's a little more important. But let me ask you this. What if you were on a crew that was tasked with installing an MRI machine in a hospital? Or what if you were part of a team that built a 747 jet. Would it be a little more important to follow the directions, to get the details right, to make sure that everything was done exactly as it needed to be done? I hope so. I hope nobody working on 747s or MRI machines just throws out the instructions like, I got this. This looks like it fits together, no big deal. I hope that's not how they're doing it. And if they are, I don't want to know. <laughs> because people's lives depend on this. So today, we're, we're in this sermon series called Focal Point. We're walking through scripture from Genesis to Revelation, looking at some of these big pictures. And we have covered the life and the death and the resurrection. And last week, we talked about the ascension of Jesus Christ. So we've gone through all the kind of the basic storyline of the Gospels. We went through all of the Old Testament. Again, not word for word or verse by verse, but kind of the big themes. And so today, I want us to look at the book of Acts. And as we walk through this, I want you to think about this question. Is the church like the Ikea furniture? That it doesn't really matter if we follow the instructions or not. We can just figure it out on our own. No big deal. Or is the church more like the MRI machine and the 747, where it absolutely matters that we follow the instructions of the designer? That's what I want you to be thinking about as we walk through this. Now, the book of Acts, in case you're not familiar with it, it is actually the second part of the book of Luke. They were written as kind of one thing to be sent to someone else. In fact, open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Luke, the author, starts off this way. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So he's writing to this... As far as we know, this high up Greek official, Theophilus, and he's writing about Jesus. And so he starts the book of Acts by referring back to what we call the book of Luke. And he says, in my former letter or my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And there's one really important word in there, and it's began. 
It's an interesting way because I think it tells us how Luke sees the book of Acts. The gospel of Luke is the beginning of everything that Jesus did. His life, his ministry, his parables, the teachings, the death on the cross, the resurrection, the ascension into heaven. And he says that's what Jesus began to do. So what is the book of Acts? It's what Jesus continued to do. You know, in some Bibles, this is called the Acts of the Apostles. And maybe you've heard it referred to as that way. I think that's a bad title. Because the book of Acts is not the Acts of the Apostles. It is the Acts of God through his people. And as we're going to look at today, specifically, it is most importantly about the Acts or the works of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at what that means as best we can this morning. The implication here is that Acts is the rest of the story. So he says that my last book is about what Jesus began to do. The implication is this book, the book of Acts, is what Jesus continues to do. But then immediately he starts shifting the subject. And he goes right into this Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is what God, Jesus, tells his disciples. The rest of what's going to happen in the book of Acts is going to be empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And throughout the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit visibly given to several groups of people. In Acts chapter 2, we see the disciples receive the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8, there are some Christians, new baby Christians in Samaria that receive the Holy Spirit. And then uh, in Acts chapter 11, there's a group of Gentiles, kind of Jewish converts that receive the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 19, we have Gentiles with no connection to the Jewish faith. They receive the Holy Spirit. So we want to look at why. Why does Luke traced this progression of the giving of the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts. And how does it fit? I thought I had Acts 1-8 up there. I guess I don't. How does it fit with Acts 1-8? Look in your Bibles, because I want you to get this in your heads. Acts 1-8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in. Now remember this. This list is crucial for the book of Acts. You will be my witnesses in what? Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is the outline of the book of Acts. He traces the gospel and the Holy Spirit coming to believers in Jerusalem and Judea, which is like the area around Jerusalem, and then Samaria, we'll get into that in a second, and then to the ends of the earth to people outside their sphere of influence, outside the influence of the early Christian church in Jerusalem, even outside the influence to some degree of the Jewish religion of the Old Testament. The presence of the Holy Spirit was a crucial issue in the early church. And Luke hones in on this important topic right away in the book of Acts. And so I want us to look at why this was and what it means for us today. Now, the most prominent thing in in the early part of the book of Acts is the giving of the Holy Spirit. 
If you look in verses 1 and 2 again in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Verse 5 of Acts 1, he says, For John baptized with water, this is Jesus speaking again, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 1-8, we read this before, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then, if you turn to Acts chapter 2, we get into the main storyline of the Bible. They do some housekeeping things at the end of Acts chapter 1. They, they choose to replace Judas uh, who had rebelled against Christ and ended up committing suicide. And so they replace him with another apostle, uh, Matthias, I believe is his name. But then in Acts chapter 2, we get to this beginning point of kind of the thread that runs throughout the book of Acts, which is the gospel going out to people, Holy Spirit coming upon people, and enabling them to keep on bringing the gospel to other people. So we want to look at this main storyline of Acts and ask what exactly is going on and how does it still apply to us today? And so in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we come to what is such an argued about passage in Scripture. So let's look at this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together, the disciples, in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, what's going on here? Two very crucial details I want us to lock in our minds. Because again, Christians throughout the ages have debated and argued and split churches over what's going on in this passage. Some people say, see, everybody that becomes a Christian, we're going to have this visible demonstration and we've got to speak in tongues, otherwise you're not a real Christian. Others say, no, that's not what I see in Scripture. Not everybody who becomes a Christian speaks in tongues. But like all debates, arguments in the church, The unfortunate thing is, in our discussion of that issue, we miss so often what the passage is actually talking about because we're so busy arguing about what we want to argue about. So what I want to do today is hopefully try to clear up some confusion, but I especially want you to get what I think they would have understood is going on here. And that is what I think is most important. So the two key issues here is that there is a sound like violent or mighty rushing wind that fills the house. The second issue is that we have tongues of fire coming to rest on each of them. Now, obviously, the third thing is is the speaking in tongues, but we're going to hold off on that for a second. Where in Scripture do we see something like wind or fire entering into a place and filling it? Because this is these were good Jewish people. They knew their Old Testament. And we have walked through the Old Testament. I've tried to point out some of these themes. Their minds would have immediately have gone to something in the Old Testament. Do you know what it would have been? The temple or the tabernacle. That's exactly where they would have gone. 
We want to argue about what it means to receive the Holy Spirit and whether we need outward signs. They would have gone, this is the temple. This is the tabernacle. Throughout scripture, God uses powerful signs of his presence to confirm that he is working in a unique and often unexpected way. And he wants people to know, God's saying this, I want you to know it's me. You're not making this up. The leaders aren't making this up. This is me. Think about Moses in the burning bush, right? Hopefully you know that story in the Old Testament. Moses is out in the wilderness and he sees a bush and it's on fire, but it's not actually burning up. Why? Because right away when he sees that, he knows God is up to something. If you fast forward to the Exodus, God meets with the Israelites on Mount Sinai to give the law. Exodus chapter 19, verse 16 says, On the mountain of the, uh, on the morning rather, of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. So there you have visible manifestations of God's glorious presence through sound through things like clouds or fog or wind, things are going on that God wants us to know, I am at work. God uses these powerful indicators to indicate that he is very present and working in a way that he doesn't want us to miss. I've used the phrase before, lights flashing and bells ringing, right? This was taught to me by my physics teacher. You get to a point in an equation, struggling with something, and you see a clue, and it's like, lights flash, bells ring. Don't miss this. This is God's way of saying to his people, don't miss this. I am doing something important. There are two specific times that this happens that we need to look at to understand what's happening in Acts chapter 2. Throughout the Exodus, how did God lead his people? Pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So you have these visible manifestations of God's presence leading God's people. And then when he brings them to Mount Sinai, he gives them his law. And throughout the law, one of the most important aspects of the law in the book of Exodus that takes more time in the book of Exodus than I think anything else is the setting up of the tabernacle. And God gives very, very detailed instructions on how to set up the tabernacle. And I know it's one of those passages as modern Christians, we read it and our eyes kind of roll back in our head and we're like, I don't know what he's talking about. Who cares what size the candlesticks were or what the thing was made out of? But God is teaching his people something important. He is going to dwell among them in that tabernacle and how they set it up and how they think about it matters because he is an all-holy, all-powerful God and they are sinners. And for a holy God to dwell among sinful people, there are some very important things that have to take place. Look at what happens when the tabernacle set up in Exodus 40, 34 to 35. It says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. They've just set it up. They finished. They did everything they had to do. And a cloud covers the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. If we fast forward to the setting up of the temple, which is just like the tabernacle, but the tabernacle was a tent temple is a permanent building. Once they got to Israel, eventually Solomon, son of David, sets up a temple. 
But we have a very similar issue in 1 Kings 8, 10 to 11. They, they finish setting up the temple. They finish filling it with all the stuff that God told them to put in it. And we read this. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. You see the pattern here? The pattern is that for both the tabernacle and the temple, there are visible obvious signs that God's glorious presence have come into that place. And for the temple and the tabernacle, they are a place. They are a building. And God's glory enters into that building. But there's more. Because as you dig, as I know you all love to, as you dig into the Old Testament law, one of the things you'll see is that there were a whole bunch of requirements for what they needed to do to purify the tabernacle and the temple from the people's sins. In Exodus chapter 40, verses 9 to 11, God commands them, take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle. This is just, it's in the passage right before the Lord's presence comes in. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it and all its furnishings and it will be holy. Then anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils. Consecrate it, and it will be most holy. Anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate them. You understand what consecrate and and be made holy means? It means to set something apart for a special purpose. Set it apart for a special purpose. Shared the story before of an unnamed child, maybe in my house, maybe not. I caught them one time, hypothetically, at the sink, using one of our knives to clean their shoe. They had taken the dog out. Things didn't quite go to plan. They needed to clean their shoe. We all on the same page here? They're using a kitchen utensil to clean their shoe. Now, hopefully there's a part of you that is revolted by that and, and maybe won't, won't ever come to our house for dinner. We took care of it. Don't worry. We shuffled it in with all the rest. You'll never know. Builds immunity. But that part of us that is offended by that, that feels so disgusted by that, gets at the heart of what it means to be holy or consecrated. That knife has a purpose. It is set apart for that purpose. We don't drop the knives on the ground and then just pick them up and put them on the table. We don't just kind of wipe them off after dinner and put them in the drawer. We put them in the very special machine that has very special settings and very special soap. Or we give them to the kids and hope they wash them. But we, we work to make sure those things are able to do what they need to do. That they're set apart for a purpose. And before the Lord's presence could come into the tabernacle, the tabernacle had to be cleansed from their sin. In chapter 40 of Exodus, or Exodus 40, 29, he says this, He, this is Moses, set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded him. I don't have time to go into the reasons for the different offerings. I recommend Chris's study in Leviticus. I'm sure he's going through some of those things. But there were various reasons for many of these offerings. 
But one of the reasons for several of the key offerings was a payment for sin to remove the offense and the stain of the sin so that the person could be consecrated, holy, set apart for a purpose. Fast forward to 1 Kings 8. King Solomon setting up the temple and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark sacrificing so many sheep and cattle they could not be recorded or counted. This was a massive barbecue. They were slaughtering animals, offering them up as sacrifices, and often those sacrifices were then shared by the people in a meal. But they understood we have got to prepare this building for the presence of the Lord to come in. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. So we have the presence of God's glory entering into a place that has been cleansed from sin by a sacrifice. And in both instances of the temple and the tabernacle, there is a visible and sometimes audible sign, and it is recognized as God's glory filling that place. Are you with me? Please, please stick with me. This is not just academic. This goes to the heart, if you're a Christian, of who you are as a Christian. And it goes to the heart of who we are as a church. Let's go back to Acts 2. Okay, turn to Acts 2, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this again. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that were that separated and came to rest on each of them. God had prepared them for thousands of years. And many Old Testament passages and examples for this very moment, for us to understand exactly what's going on here. God's glory is filling God's dwelling place. Just like in the tabernacle and just like in the temple. But there are a couple amazing differences. Because the place that God fills with his presence here is not a room. And it's not a building. What is it? It is people. The new temple and the new tabernacle are Christians. People saved by Jesus Christ. But there's something missing. Something that to the Jewish mind they would have said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. God's glory and God's presence can't come into a place, temple, people, whatever, unless something really important happens. Something has to happen to cleanse that place of sin. The sin must be paid for. Throughout the Old Testament, they did this Day of Atonement. Over and over, annually, they had this Day of Atonement. Uh, Leviticus 16.34 says, This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. But earlier in that passage, he says something a little different. In this way, he will make atonement for what? The most holy place. Stick with me, okay? On the one hand, he says, you're going to do a sacrifice to pay for your sins. On another hand, he says, you're going to do a sacrifice to cleanse this place so that God's presence can dwell there. So my question is this. 
If the place of God's dwelling has to be cleansed from sin and has to be absolutely pure and holy in order to be a place worthy for God's presence, where is this in Acts? How is it that such a momentous thing can happen that God's presence can come in and dwell in God's people? Where is the sacrifice? In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That's what the book of Luke is all about. It sets the stage for this. Where is the sacrifice that purifies the people so that God's presence can come and dwell in us? Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. This has changed everything. Through the cross of Jesus... We are cleansed from our sins, forgiven, made righteous, holy, consecrated, set apart for a purpose, so that now the unthinkable has happened throughout all of human history. God's presence can come and dwell in the hearts and lives of people who were dead in their sin, but now are made alive through Jesus Christ. This is what fueled the mission of the church in Acts. God's presence was with them wherever they went. Everything changed in that moment. These disciples that we read in Luke and Matthew and Mark and John that are running away from the cross, running away from the, the, um, the court trial that Jesus is going through and they're abandoning him. Peter, who denies even knowing Jesus to a servant girl, is able to stand up on the streets of Jerusalem facing certain death and proclaim Jesus Christ as the Messiah because something changed. The presence of God is with them. And God was using this ragtag group of people that have been saved by Jesus and have the presence of God in their life dwelling within them as the new tabernacle and temple. They now have a mission to go invite others into that relationship, to be saved by Jesus, to become a dwelling place of God's holy presence, and to follow God and be used by him for the work of the gospel. This is amazing. And before we go on to this next point, I want to stop and just ask you, do you see your relationship with Christ in this way? Do you understand if you are a Christian, the holy presence of God is in you all the time, wherever you go and whatever you do? And I wonder if we as Christians, if we as the church today, that's what the church is, not a building. Church is us, Christians. This building burned down today, Orchard Community Church would go on. Because the church is the people, not the building. God doesn't fill buildings anymore. He fills people, which is far better. Because when you leave this church, you leave this building rather, you're still the church. And the church is still at work. Do we see ourselves this way? And so often when I come across these things in Scripture, I just have to stop and think, what difference would it make if we did? How much more fearless would we be? What would we have to be afraid of in our world if we believed that the presence of the Almighty, All-Holy God was with us wherever we went? 
So what does this look like throughout the rest of the book of Acts? The presence of the Holy Spirit in the early church, just as today, allowed them, enabled them to fulfill the mission to take the gospel to the whole world. And we see this right away in Acts chapter 2. This is one of those things Christians love to debate over. But it says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Later on in verse 8, they go out into the city. They are speaking in these tongues. And verse 8 tells us that the crowd responds, how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? So, so here's the problem. Because it's Pentecost, there are all these foreigners that have come into Jerusalem. Now, presumably, they probably could have spoken a common language. But they all had their own homeland language. And they're there because of this festival. And the disciples go out and a miracle takes place. These people hear the message of the disciples in their own language. That's what's going on in Acts chapter 2. They are hearing the message in their own language. Pastor Dave, how can you say that? Because that's what it says. Just, just That's right out of the text, what it says. Now, I will say this. I don't know what the miracle was. Could the disciples speak in languages that they didn't know? That's possible. Did the disciples speak in their own language and everybody heard it in, in their own language? I don't know. That's possible too. I don't think it really matters. It's a miracle either way. But here's the other thing. Early on in this sermon series, we trace the development of sin. Started in creation, Genesis chapter 1. We went to the fall in Genesis chapter 3. We looked at how bad things got as people started killing other people. And we get into the genealogy of Adam, and he died, and he died, and he died. And there's this grand crescendo as to how awful the world gets. And it comes in Genesis chapter 11. And they build a tower to be like God. And God steps in and says, I cannot allow them to try to do this, to be like God on their own terms. And then later we looked at chapter 12 when he calls Abraham and he says, I will make you great. It's not that he didn't want them to be great, but he knew they couldn't get there on their own. And what did God do to frustrate their efforts? He confused their languages. That's where we get the word Babel from, the Tower of Babel. It literally means to babble. Uncomprehensible language. And now here, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit, we have an undoing of the Tower of Babel. This is how God works. He lays plans in place thousands of years before he brings them to fruition so that we can stand back and say, look at what our God has done. And for the disciples to be able to say what confidence we can go out and preach the gospel with because the Holy Spirit is empowering us for this what seems to be an impossible mission. But if God is with us, we can do it. The point is that God, through His, the presence of his Holy Spirit and his people, has given us everything necessary to point other people to salvation. How often do we live in fear? What if my loved one doesn't accept Jesus? What if, if this doesn't happen? How do I share Christ with this person or that person? These are valuable concerns. It's meaningful. They come from a heart of wanting others to know Christ. But could we stop and remind ourselves 
presence of the Almighty, all holy God is with me. I don't have to worry about figuring all this out. I just need to step out in faith and go and tell. Another thing that's very evident from the book of Acts is that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling his people go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our life is not this extra extraneous benefit that we get from being a Christian. They go together. The gospel saves us and purifies us and the presence of God indwells us. They go together. So the question's always raised, why then are these moments throughout the book of Acts that these different people receive the Holy Spirit in a special way? Briefly, Luke said at the very beginning that he wants to record the giving of the gospel, the taking of the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea, to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. When we look at the four times that the Holy Spirit is poured out on a group of people in the book of Acts, it follows this pattern. Acts chapter 2, we have the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the disciples in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8, we have the Holy Spirit being poured out on Samaritan believers. Acts chapter 10, we have the pouring out of uh, the Holy Spirit on believers in Cornelius' house, who was a Gentile, not a Jewish person. And then in Acts chapter... Oh, I didn't write it down here. Later on, I think it's 19. We have the, yeah, uh, 19, we have the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the Ephesian believers. But here's the thing. There are many people that get saved in Acts, and there's no record of a pouring out of a Holy Spirit on them. There's no mention of it whatsoever. But in these four cases, it is very prominent. Why? Because God wanted them to understand that this was him at work. And he wanted them to understand when he went to Samaritans whom they would not have accepted, he is saying, don't miss this. I have saved them through my son, Jesus Christ. And then when you get to Gentile Jewish believers, these are called God-fearers or sometimes proselytes or kind of different things, but people that have kind of obeyed the law of the Old Testament and believe in the God of the Old Testament, but they're Gentiles. God says, I don't want you to miss this. They're saved through Jesus. And then you get to Gentiles that aren't Jewish whatsoever. They have nothing to do with the Gentile religion. And God says, don't miss this. I have received them as well. The Jewish religion, not the Gentile religion. You know when you say something, you look over and your wife is smirking? (laughs) You know you said something wrong. Thanks, honey. I appreciate that. Keeps me humble. The point is this. because this is such a debated thing, we don't have time to get into all of this. But the Bible clearly teaches that all believers have the Holy Spirit. This is not something you have to hope for, dream for, pray for, want. First, or I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Too many Christians have lived with an immense amount of guilt because they have been taught that you have to pray for and seek this additional blessing of the Holy Spirit. 
God has poured out a spirit on all believers because there is nothing we must do to receive the spirit. Christ has done it all. And if you are a Christian, you have the presence of God in you. And God's powerful presence gave that early church everything they needed. At the beginning of Acts, there are maybe a hundred believers. It's hard to know. We have the disciples plus some others. By the end of Acts, the gospel had spread throughout the entire Roman Empire with gatherings of Christians in all of the major cities and many of the minor ones as well. Why? Because God was at work. He was with them. It wasn't great planning. It wasn't a great mission strategy. It certainly wasn't lights, lasers, or smoke machines. And it wasn't changing their message to make people want to hear what they were saying. They were able to do this because of the presence of God with them. But it was not without a struggle. And the other thing that we need to look at briefly, I promise, is how hard this was. The gospel of Jesus Christ just as it is today, was contrary to so many things in their culture. It was contrary to things in the Jewish religion, contrary to things in the Gentile religion, and the early church Christians often found themselves at, odd, at odds rather, with the world around them. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin and asked to explain, what are you guys doing? And what do they do? They share the gospel. Acts chapter 4.18, they're told, stop it. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach in all the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And these guys that were arrested for talking about Jesus, what do they do? Acts 4.31, they continue to speak the word of God boldly. Acts chapter 6 Stephen is arrested for preaching the gospel. And he's asked to give an account of what he's doing. So what does he do? Well, he starts with Abraham and he walks all the way through the Old Testament right up to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. He tells them about Jesus. And what do they do? Stephen is dragged outside the city, thrown down into a pit, and they pick up large rocks and throw them at him until he is dead. They kill him for it. Persecution breaks out in Jerusalem and the Christians and the disciples, many of them have to flee. Later, we're introduced to the Apostle Paul who travels the world teaching and preaching about Jesus and the pattern repeats itself. He is arrested, persecuted, often suffering and often suffering and just keeps on talking about Jesus. But the struggle came from inside the church as well. There was this pressure to change what they believed so that the Gentile believers would have to act like the Jewish believers. And in Acts 15, they get together and they say, what's going to be most important? And they say, we're going to focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we will not allow anything to come into the church that will undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, the church does not grow through gimmicks or modern techniques in any age. Techniques and tools can be used. Technology can be used. But the church grows through the preaching and teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the presence of God's Holy Spirit. We have a lot to learn today from this. 
The gospel will bring difficulty. And there is always this pressure and this temptation to change what we believe or how we talk about it. We need to look to the book of Acts and say, we can't do that. We must speak the words of Christ. The church is not Ikea furniture. We do not get to throw out the book and say, let's just figure it out on our own. The people of the church belong to God, are saved by Christ, and are the dwelling place of God's Holy Spirit. And God has prepared for the beginning of the church for thousands of years, and he has continued to work in and through his people up to and continuing through today. He knows you. And he knows your struggles. And he is at work in you. We have a mission then to invite others. To share the gospel with them. That God's dwelling place could be in them as well. These people lost in sin. Dead and in the grave. Struggling in their life. Looking for hope and meaning. And we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the good news that God wants to come in and live with them in their life. Are we going to be afraid? Christians today are facing immense pressure to change what we say and what we believe based on changing things in our culture. We are looked upon as being hateful because of our unwillingness to change in some of these areas. But we look at the words of Acts and we have to have the same response. What should we do? Are we going to speak the words of humans? In culture, are we going to speak the words of God and hold on to the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe in the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us that saves us and can save others? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are who we are because of you. And I thank you that you are powerfully at work among this group of people. And I pray that we would take seriously that your holy presence is in us, powerfully working through us, with us wherever we go. And I pray that that would give us a boldness, but that it would also give us a clarity in our mission to keep our focus on you. You have done everything necessary and possible for our salvation. It is through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of his death, burial, and resurrection, that we are able to stand unashamed and unafraid in your presence. And it is through that same gospel we are able to invite others into a relationship with you. And it is that truth that allows us to say and to know that your presence is with us. We are vessels made holy, cleansed by you, set apart for a purpose. May that define us and give us strength and courage as we face often great difficulty in this world. May we remember to keep our focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. I pray this in your glorious name. Amen.